The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, for they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As we continue in the Easter season this evening, it's almost as if Luke has been anticipating our objections to something as ludicrous sounding as someone being raised from the dead and a group of men and women who saw him get raised from the dead and then went about turning the world upside down somehow. And the big objection that I think most people have, other than that first generation, is that we weren't there. We weren't there. I mean, it would be so easy to believe if we had been there, if we had seen him die and seen him come back to life. The truth, though, is that Luke is writing to an early group of Christians who, though they were much closer to the events than we are, they probably had much of the same objection. This happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
How are we supposed to really trust that this happened? We weren't there. How can you honestly have a religion based on interacting with and experience a person, experiencing a person when only the first generation within that religious movement actually got to interact with and experience the person? This is kind of a problem, right? Luke has an answer for us, though, if we'll hear it. And his answer is not that our experience of Jesus is no different from that first generation. It is. We have to be able to admit that. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. We are not. And yet, our experience of Jesus is just as real, just as true, just as full, if not more so, because we experience him in two ways. We experience Jesus in the word, and we experience Jesus in the sacraments. We're going to start by looking at how Luke sets up the scene and then look at word and sacrament in turn. So Luke tells us that Cleopas and his unnamed companion, who tradition tells us was his wife Mary, were walking away from Jerusalem on the day of resurrection, engaged in an emotional conversation about everything that they had just witnessed. They're dejected, they're downcast, they've lost him. Luke is a really skilled writer, and he's actually uh, sort of bookending this with the story of when, when Jesus' parents lose him at the temple, and they've been walking away from Jerusalem for three days, and they're downcast, and they're digest, dejected. They've lost him. He, he was right there. And what has he been doing? Well, Luke's already told us. He set us up for this story to tell us that Jesus has been about his father's biz- business. But for Cleopas and his traveling companion, it seems as if they'd followed the wrong guy. They'd put their trust in a failed Messiah. It wasn't the first time that a failed Messiah had come along. But Luke, being such a skillful writer, sets up some incredible irony by telling us, the readers, that this person that they meet on the road is Jesus, but they have no idea that it's him. They have no idea in their dejection and hopelessness that Jesus himself is talking to them. And Luke tells us that they were kept from recognizing him. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So as Jesus sidles on up, you can almost hear the stress in Cleopas' voice as he maybe almost berates this foolish stranger. Are you insane? You've got to be the only person in this whole city who doesn't know the things that just happened, he says. What rich irony that Cleopas acts as if Jesus is the one who can't see things clearly. So Jesus just sets the bait. Oh? What things? And Cleopas responds by telling Jesus about himself. And it's one of the earliest primitive Christologies, but it's all pretty accurate. Jesus, the Nazarene, was a powerful prophet both in word and deed before God and people. And Luke isn't portraying Cleopas as wrong. In fact, he's got the facts pretty much squared. Jesus was a powerful prophet. And Cleopas and his companion thought that Jesus was going to redeem Israel, but the rulers of their people had him murdered, he says. It's the third day since his death, and some of our women have seemed a bit hysterical because we can't find his body, and some angels are trying to tell us he's alive, and some of our friends tried to confirm this, but we haven't seen him. Cleopas and many of Jesus' other disciples, at least at this point, were still misunderstanding the Hebrew Scriptures. 
They knew to expect a Messiah, a Redeemer of Israel, and they had picked up on some of the various scriptural references as to what this Redeemer would look like, but they still somehow managed to miss the actual picture. This highlights something really key for us that the church fathers talked about quite a bit. They, they referred to scripture as a mosaic. They would say it was as if a skilled artist built up a mosaic in the image of a king's face, but that it's possible to take those same tiles and rearrange them and make the image of a fox. And in their metaphor, what they're saying is that you can read scripture apart from the creeds and apart from the tradition of the apostles, that which has been handed down about the death and resurrection of Christ, and in so doing, you will not get the picture. You just won't. You have to read it with that certain lens in place, the lens of the apostles' preaching. I think often we tend to treat scripture like a Where's Waldo book. We sort of skim around looking for the one thing that we're trying to find according to our own set of rules, our own hypotheses as a grid for finding what we're already looking for. But what Luke shows us here in Jesus' teaching and what he'll show us subsequently in the book of Acts and the apostles' preaching is that Christ is both the keystone from which all Scripture finds its footing and Christ is the subject of all Scripture, meaning that all of Scripture must be read through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ. If you want to understand Genesis 1-1, you have to know that Jesus died and rose again. Luke tells us that starting with Moses and going straight through all the prophets, Jesus explains to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures. Hebrew scriptures were traditionally divided into three groups, the Torah, the prophets, and the writing. Torah is often referred to as the book of Moses, and so what Luke is saying to us in shorthand is that Jesus shows this couple of travelers himself in the entire Old Testament their whole book of scriptures. He shows them that he is the creator God, that he is the Lion of Judah. He is the prophet greater than Moses, the priestly king in the line of David who will inherit David's throne forever. He is the son of man who receives glory from the ancient of days. He's pictured in the exodus from Egypt. He's the bronze snake lifted up in the wilderness. He is the lamb sacrificed for Passover and the tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling on earth. He is the scapegoat slaughtered outside the camp. He is wisdom from the book of Proverbs, the crushed man in the Psalms, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the man about which Cyrus, the pagan king, prophesied. He would go up to Jerusalem and his God would be with him. That's how the Hebrew Old Testament ends, with that prophecy. It's about Christ. He is the one upon whom God's spirit will rest the one who will pour out God's spirit on his people. He's the one who proclaims freedom to captives, gives sight to the blind, and declares the year of the Lord's favor. He is the one who will build a road from Assyria and from Egypt to Jerusalem, where all people, even the enemies of God's people themselves, will come and worship him together. That's Christ. He's the whole story. But even more than that, Jesus himself... The word of God is the fulfillment of and model for the very icon of scripture itself, the mosaic of God's work in the world. Jesus' life fits the pattern of God's scriptural revelation, which is always suffering, 
before glory. It's interesting in the Gospel of Luke because he doesn't give us a scrap of atonement theory. There are no big theological reasons for why the Messiah had to suffer and die. Luke never gets into it at all. All he says about why the Messiah had to suffer and die is because the scripture said it must be so. It's the only reason he gives, and he gives it over and over again. But it's because that's the picture that scripture has been painting all along. It's like a photo mosaic. Each small picture, each small story is placed just so, and if we can step back and take it all in, we can see the story of the Messiah, the story of suffering and then glory. It's a story of the God of all things, pulling the sin, suffering, and death of the entire world down into the black hole of his own death before emerging on the other side in resurrection. It's the story of the curse being reversed, suffering, and then glory. We experience Christ in his word when we read it through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ. But as the day fades, the, the couple still, after all of this teaching, don't quite recognize him, do they? So they urge this stranger to stay with them, but he kind of pretends like he's itching to get on his way. So they insist that he stay. After all, they've never heard someone tell all these familiar stories in such an unfamiliar way. And so he agrees. And he sits down at the supper table with them, and he takes the bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And they could have sworn they almost heard him say that time what they heard Peter tell them he said the night before he died, this is my body given for you. As he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. It's the same word that the Greek Old Testament uses for the eyes of Adam and Eve being opened when they eat the fruit. They become aware of a new reality in a way that they never had been. This is full circle, folks. All the way from the curse to the new creation. They see their Messiah. It's him. It's Jesus. And then, like a candle, he's gone. Disappears. You see that Luke is pulling the rug out from under our objection that we haven't seen Christ raised in the flesh? What he's showing us is that even those who do see him don't see him. It is God who reveals himself to us, not we who stumble upon him. As Father John Bear says, the usual methods of human knowledge are inadequate for finding God, because God is not subject to human perception, but shows himself as and when he wills. That's what it means earlier in the passage when Luke tells us that they were kept from recognizing him. It's that God dwells in a different dimension in many ways. And so when people encounter him, it is always because of his self-revelation. Disciples, people who follow Jesus, are those who have come to recognize him as he has revealed himself, which is the one whose passion is spoken of by the scriptures. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the scriptures in his death and resurrection. But those same people who follow Jesus 
come to recognize him and encounter him in the sacramental meal of bread and wine. It is in the breaking of bread that these two people see Jesus. They see him as truly as we do. And this sort of starts to explain the liturgy a bit, doesn't it? Most of you have probably heard me uh, tell this story many times. Margot Fontaine, who is hailed as one of the best classical ballet dancers in the 20th century, was down in her dressing room after a performance, and a woman comes in, knocks on the door, and says, hey, could you just explain that ballet to me? And Margot says, I explained it when I danced it. That's why ballet exists, because you can't explain everything with words. One of the reasons that we don't explain the liturgy regularly is because it isn't a thing that can be decoded and explained. It is an active encounter with the living God. That's what's happening here. It's not a thing to tickle our brains. It's not a thing to make us feel better. It is an active encounter with the living God in gathering together in the name of Christ to worship. The word and bread get broken open for us and we are caught up into the timelessness of Christ's self-revelation. I'll unpack that one later. (laughs) We are caught up into the timelessness of Christ's self-revelation. We are being brought into heaven encountering Christ at his table. Now, I think many of us have grown up in a cultural Christianity that views church as a sort of free association. We can kind of pick up and put down as we see fit. And the gathered worship time becomes something for us to engage in if and when we choose. And I fear that some of us have grown accustomed to treating the gathered worship of Christ as an optional weekend activity, something that we'll do if there aren't already other things on our calendar. But if Luke and the apostles and really the entire apostolic church over the last 2,000 years are correct in teaching that it is here, in gathering around the Eucharist in worship, that we encounter Christ in a way that we do not and cannot encounter him in any other sphere of our lives, and that it is this Eucharistic encounter that actually gives shape and form to those others' encounters of him, those encounters in personal prayer, in family, in small groups, in work, in leisure, then to treat the Eucharistic gathering as flippantly optional as some of us do is a sign of deep and troubling disconnect. To skip out on this meeting with the crucified and risen Christ for something that you wouldn't call sick into work for doesn't just highlight a lack of understanding. It reveals what we truly worship. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts Idol factories, I-D-O-L, idol. The most natural thing in the world for us to do is to find something, anything to worship other than Christ. Which is why for all of us, if the Christian life is to be truly life in the spirit, 
It is always a life of repentance, a life of conversion. To be in Christ is to continually be turned from our idols and toward him. So as I see you running your races in Christ, I say to you what St. Gregory of Nyssa said to his hearers in so many words. Keep running. What he said was run faster. Run harder. Don't turn back. And if you have found yourself wandering, come back. Come back to the cold, refreshing waters of Christ. It is more than possible that some of us here have let our hearts wander away from our true home, from our true shepherd. And if that's the case, then our one job is to not let our wandering hearts harden by assuming that repentance isn't worth the pain or that God is too disappointed with us to take us back. Rather, we are to hear the voice of Christ calling us home, to hear him tell us that there is no condemnation for those who are in him, to see him running like an overjoyed father toward us before we can even get our apology speech figured out. What I'm saying is, Jesus is good. And he's inviting you to his table to come and feast with him. Don't dismiss his invitation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.